and This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour open-line talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. To express your viewpoint, please call 804-754-1988. That's 804-754-1988. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. This very day, the United States Congress, the House of Representatives, is taking upon itself the decision to determine whether or not to embrace what is called the Equality Act. The Equality Act is really not about equality at all. It's actually about another thing that is closer to the term equity, which has now replaced the word equality in the political uh, jargon of the day. The whole idea is to use the word equality in order to force the entire nation No matter who you are, whether you're a Republican, a Democrat, or neither, whether you're a Christian or a Muslim or some other religion, to force every single person to kowtow to the new wokeness of the culture being made into law. So that everything that Christians, for instance, would stand for as biblical will now be deemed bigotry. And, under color of law, therefore, will be subject to the iron fist of law to suppress your viewpoint. That's where we are. We do not know at this juncture whether the United States Congress has indeed decided to opt for that act, but that is the direction. Everything is moving in that direction. Jesus himself predicted that lawlessness would increase as we approach the end of the age. And because lawlessness would increase, the love of many would wax cold. And the lawlessness that he talked about was not whether or not we would obey uh, the police officer or uh, follow the uh, uh, speed limit, although that may have been included. What he was really talking about is whether or not we would obey God. That's really what he was talking about, because he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you don't love me, you won't. But if you will love me and keep my commandments, I and my Father will make ourselves manifest to you. But what if we don't? What if we don't obey God? What if increasingly in our culture, even in the name of Christ and under color of law, we decide to be absorbed into the ever-amorphing culture in order to try to win the culture. Well, that was the spirit of first the church growth movement, metastasized into the seeker-sensitive movement, then into the emerging truth movement, and who knows where it is today. But what we do know today is our lampstand as Christians is flickering out in our country. So today on Viewpoint, we have a very special guest joining us again. It's been a number of years since Erwin Lutzer has joined us here on the program, but he's written a tremendous book called We Will Not Be Silenced. We will not be silenced. So our guest today is not willing wearing a silencer, and neither is this host. So Erwin, it's good to have you back on the program. So great to be with you again, Chuck. It has been some time. You and I would uh, connect ourselves periodically at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention, 
but uh, you and I have not interfaced for uh, quite a few years now, and it's good to have, hear your good voice. Well, thank you, and good to hear from you as well. And I can say this, since the last time we met, so many dominoes have fallen that uh, we as believers need to be aware of this, and we need to ask the question, how do we stand against a very intolerant, secularized, humanized Marxist culture? Well, that's exactly where we are. Those who have been listening to this program long, we've been on the air now for 25 and a half years, confronting the deepest issues of America's heart and home from God's eternal perspective. And uh, so they understand uh, many of these issues, but you have translated them in a very, very effective way. Uh, And I I think it's very worthy of bringing your viewpoint uh, before our listeners here today. And we're certainly going to offer your book uh, as we move on uh, through the program today. Your question is, how do we live courageously in a culture where the people who shout the loudest win the argument? How do we fight against legitimate injustices when we're asked to bow a knee to a larger destructive agenda? I thought those questions were very well placed. What's the answer? Well, you know, the answer can't be given in a single sentence. Absolutely. To some extent, uh, you know, everyone is going to ask that qu- answer that question differently. The businessman is going to ask, am I going to write a fake letter of apology for having been born white? Or am I going to stand against the human rights uh, campaign in my business that I am employed with? Or, you know, the school teacher here in Chicago who told me that he was told that it is not enough to simply celebrate same-sex marriage if he doesn't, excuse me, it's not enough if he simply tolerates it. If he doesn't celebrate it, he could lose his job. Mm -hmm. So there's a line in the sand. So... My challenge is this. I wrote this book not so much to reclaim the culture, but to reclaim the church. I am so glad. I tell you, when I read that statement in your book, and yes, I read your book, uh, when I read that statement in your book, I thought, now this is a man after my own heart, because that's exactly what we have been saying here on this program for so long, but most people don't seem to get it. Yeah, in other words, the culture war. I can't imagine us being able to turn the clock back to a day when same-sex marriage is no longer legal. I mean, that may happen if there would be a national, a powerful national revival throughout all of America, which we pray for. But at the same time, here's the problem. The Church is buying into the culture, Mm -hmm. and the Church is being uh, more influenced by the culture than it is even by the Bible. And we could talk in my book, for example, I distinguish biblical justice from social justice. Mm -hmm. So you have these evangelical churches that are uh, teaching social justice, and they think that they're doing something good, because that certainly sounds right, and they don't understand that the social justice that they are talking about actually is much more uh, closely aligned to Marx than it is the Bible. Yes, it is. so what we need to do is to understand the Bible has a lot to say about justice, but social justice is entirely different. Well, that brings us to uh, another discussion, which perhaps we'll spend more time on as we go through the program today, and that is CRT, critical race theory, 
And uh, what you did not know, even though you spoke about it in your book numerous times, uh, that a month ago we did a very serious analysis of this subject as it related to two major denominations in our country. One, the Southern Baptist Convention, and the other, Presbyterian Church in America. And both of them are struggling hugely. There is a veritable warfare going on in both of those denominations, and they're supposed to be some of the warmest, uh, most evangelical in the country. Yes, and a number of weeks ago, some of the leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention got together and they unanimously criticized and rejected critical race theory. But um, it is, there's no doubt it's coming into the churches. Yeah. In my book, you know, I make a short reference to the Southern Baptists. Right. And how Can they we pick are. up on that after the break, Irwin? Hang yep. in there. We'll be right back, friends. Stay tuned. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. David Jeremiah, Dr. David Jeremiah said, if I could put this book into the hands of every Christian in America, I would do it. If I could, I would put this book into the hands of every Christian in America. Well, what book is that? The one we're talking about here today. We will not be silenced. Responding courageously to our culture's assault on Christianity by Erwin Lutzer. Now, I want to make the book available to you. It's an $18 book. We're going to make it available to you for your gift of $16 to Save America Ministries. It's on our website, saveus.org. That's saveus.org. You can give us a call at 1-800-SAVE-USA, 1-800-SAVE-USA, or write to us at Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Writing a check at $5 for postage and handling and we will get this extremely timely and helpful book. If you're having difficulty understanding the nature of what is really developing right now, I urge you to get this book. This very day, I had a medical doctor, a a very seasoned medical doctor, who also has been involved in this birth city of America, Richmond, Virginia, for many, many years, seeking to work among the churches to bring a kind of unity together, particularly with regard to uh, the racial divisions. He sat, he, he, at his own motion, asked, could he get together? We hadn't been together for about 10 years. And he says, what's going on? What is going on? He feels that his labors have been in vain. Uh, we're seeing the spirit of so-called wokeness that has replaced the spiritual awakening that we all sought. It is now a cultural wokeness that is replacing the authority of God and his word. And, uh, you know, we prayed together, we lamented together, and he said, please define the word wokeness for me. Well, it's basically just a secular awakening of uh, politically correct, 
multiculturalistic, religious pluralistic values all wrapped together as if they are now the gospel for eternity. That's basically what we're looking at. Our special guest today, Erwin Lutzer, with his book, We Will Not Be Silenced. And uh, Erwin, uh, I know you've used the word wokeness or, or woke in your book. Uh, it is a term that has, it's, it's virtually inescapable now, but so many people, particularly of our age, uh, just don't get it. I, I struggled with uh, f- trying to figure out what it really meant. Did you? Yes, exactly. And I think the way you defined it is probably the most accurate definition I've heard is where you have the intersection of culture, cultural Marxism, racism, and so forth. Back to your friend for just a moment. Mm -hmm. The reason he's having so much difficulty is because the racial divide in America is intentional. I show this in my book, how that Saul Alinsky who was a Marxist here in Chicago, mm-hmm. he knew that he could apply Marxism to race. And his whole intention was not to solve problems. I talked to somebody who worked with him who said we had many good solutions for the under-resourced uh, communities of Chicago. And he said, no, our goal is not to bring about reconciliation or help. Our goal is power. And in order to have revolution. Power, yeah, revolution. Mm-hmm. In order to have power, what you have to do is to divide the races in a Marxist way where you have the oppressed and the oppressors, and you have to make sure that there is tension uh, between the two without any hope of reconciliation. Now, the eventual Marxist hope is that the oppressed will eventually overcome the oppressors and have cultural dominance. Well, that is the spirit of the French Revolution. That's the French Revolution uh, repeated. Somebody who's an African-American in Chicago uh, at Moody Church told me this, and this is really powerful. He said, we are growing farther up, farther apart all the time, and we are told there cannot be any resolution until whites meet certain standards. And since those standards are impossible, the conflict continues. So your friend is probably farther away from working with churches with any sense of reconciliation than he would have been years ago, because the whole point is to keep the races in complete um, antagonism. How sad is that? How sad is that? Because, uh, Erwin, I don't know where you've been on this issue, but I have been involved uh, for the past uh, 27, 28 years uh, from coast to coast in uh, working behind the scenes uh, to speak on issues of, of God's view on racial reconciliation. For instance, Tony Evans came out and said at one point, God isn't going to ride into Washington on the backs of elephants or donkeys. He's not coming to take sides. He's coming to take over. Uh, indeed, that is true. I remember back our very first advisory board member was Dr. John Perkins, a very serious-minded evangelical spokesperson uh, seeking to work within the inner cities. But the reality is almost all of that has been destroyed now uh, by the Black Lives Matter movement, which is merely, merely a surrogate, as you said, for Alinsky and his rules for radicals. And that's why they have on their ra- their website that they believe in the dissolution of the of the family 
the nuclear family. The reason for that is Karl Marx saw the family as a unit of oppression uh, because wives oppressed their husbands, uh, parents oppressed their children, they took them to church. God was the ultimate oppressor. So what you want to do is to throw off all restraints and all oppression. And so exactly, we are farther away now. But what I show in the book Chuck, and I want to thank you so much that you have read it. Sometimes I'm interviewed (laughs) by people who haven't. I know the feeling. (laughs) That um, at the cross of Christ, we say there isn't that much difference between us. We are all sinners. We come to the cross. We receive forgiveness. We are one in Christ, as Paul taught. And then we ask, how can we help each other? Mm -hmm. But we can't help each other as long as we have critical race theory and intersectionality which is intentionally in, uh, you know, a philosophy, hoping to divide, to accuse, to blame, back and forth, and people have to realize that's intentional. There's no, there's no sense in which there's to be working together. Antagonism is the goal. All right, so when, uh, uh, what was his name, uh, Rodney Brown, uh, Rodney King, Back there in uh, the early 1990s uh, with the Watts riot there in California. I was then there in California practicing law. And, uh, you know, the place was on fire. Los Angeles was on fire. And uh, the famous words came across uh, Time magazine on its front page, can't we all get along? Well, at that time, those words had some contextual meaning. Can't we all get along? The word today, based upon what you're saying and what we're hearing from Black Lives Matter and all of the other uh, new voices out there, is no, we can't all get along until blacks superimpose their will on whites. Whites are uh, cast out because whites now have become the essential uh, evil of our time, and therefore Only until that happens can we purport to get along. Exactly, and that's totally 100% Karl Marx, of course, Yeah, where the oppressed have to overcome their oppressors. And uh, by the way, I also show in the book how Marx is applied to freedom of speech. The whole idea is this, that if we have freedom of speech, the capitalists are always going to win the argument because they are the oppressors. So we have to shut them down, and it is time for the oppressed to speak, namely the LGBT community and minorities, and they are the ones. And that's why conservatism is not allowed. If you have a conservative go to a university, oftentimes he's not allowed to speak, he or she. And the reason is because I quote a contemporary writer who said unapologetically, We need a double standard. So Mm. that's where we are. And anyone out there who thinks that when they send their kids to unit, by the way, another reason I wrote the book we're talking about is so that parents would understand why is it that when I send my children to university, why do they come back hating America? And I show how Marxism is applied to our history, trying to trash our... Well, maybe it's because when your grandchildren and mine go to the public schools, they're told you cannot use the words he or she. Uh, You cannot uh, uh, 
admit any kind of natural truths like that, you must conform to the new standard of wokeness. So it's being inserted right there in our elementary schools. We're seeing it everywhere, and I know you've got to have it there in Chicago. Oh, exactly. And, of course, you know, as uh, as we know, our president on the first day basically said that um, biological men who identify as women can part- uh, participate in women's sports. This, of course, is insanity. But John, And in women's showers. Yes. What mm-hmm. we need to understand is we're living in a day in which absurdity is no longer an argument against anything. Is this what so, the scriptures t- meant when it said t- calling good evil and evil good? Yes, and I want to comment on that verse. Go ahead. The radical left, half of the verse is they take that which is evil and they call it good, but they're not yet finished until the good is branded as evil. So they have to do both of those statements. And uh, they are not satisfied until that which is good is evil. And I'm going to make a prediction on your show. I'm not a prophet. I'm not one of these who gets dreams and visions, as you well know. Oh, I don't know. Your wife told me you were quite a dreamer. (laughs) But that which is, uh, you know, Chuck, that which is canceled today is going to be criminalized tomorrow. Mm -hmm. That's where we're going. That which is canceled today. And by the way, in my book, I also talk about collective demonization. Maybe mm-hmm. we'll be able to get into that, which was perfected in the Soviet Union. That's yeah. in my chapter on propaganda. Well, I was just going to say that uh, that is propaganda. That's how it's used. Uh, friends, again, there's just absolutely no way we can delve uh, fully into the substance of this book, which is so timely. We will not be silenced. Responding courageously to our culture's assault on Christianity. Right now, we're engaged in analysis. We're engaged in taking a look at what is. But then, in the second half of the program, we are going to begin to move toward, okay, seeing then that all these things are happening and are going to happen, just as the scriptures said would happen, now how should we then live? What are we to do? What are professing Christians to do? And what are pastors to do who are enticed into the ways of the world, supposedly to win the world? That's what we want to be looking at. The book, We Will Not Be Silenced, it's an $18 book, yours for uh, only $16. It's on our website, saveus.org. That's saveus.org. Give us a call at 1-800-SAVE-USA. That's 1-800-SAVE-USA. Or write to us at Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Writing a check at $5 for postage and having. Uh, Dr. Tony Evans says Erwin Lutzer has given us a challenge, inspirational, and provocative work. It is provocative, quite frankly, because, friends, many of us just don't quite get it. In fact, many Christians don't want to get it. It's kind of like sticking our heads in the sand and hoping that it's all going to go away. Well, it's not all going to go away, and that's why Erwin Lutzer has written this book to help us get a grip on where things are and to help us to understand then what our attitude should be, what our actions should be in response, not just to rail on the culture out there, 
But there may be some other things that you and I are called to do. And uh, so I hope that you uh, will continue to listen and will get a copy of the book. By the way, uh, Irwin, this program will be uh, available on our website uh, starting this evening, and it will be there for approximately a year under the archive section of the website, saveus.org. So, friends, uh, if you are wanting others to be able to listen to it, I urge you to do it. Erwin, you were pastor of the uh, uh, Moody Church there in Chicago for 36 years. My goodness, such longevity. Well, yes, and Chuck, you may not know this, but my father lived to 106, my mother to 103. I always say that my parents lived so long that until my father died... I'm sure all of their friends in heaven thought that they just didn't make it. <laughs> they said, where are the Lutzers? But the Lutzers made it. I'm the product of my parents' prayers. Well, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. We'll be back with Erwin in just a few moments, friends. Stay tuned. So much more for us to talk about. I'm glad you've joined us. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, on the front page are two great videos. First, an interview and discussion of Chuck's book, Out of Egypt. Also, a great TV interview with Chuck regarding his book, Seduction of the Saints. Much more videos, a for pastors only section, and also you can view Chuck's weekly teachings. All at his website saveus.org. That's saveus.org. Also on Chuck's website, listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast. Listen to the archives. Maybe you missed a program. Check it out at saveus.org. Also, there are some great resources, hospitality information, also information about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, newsletters, articles, prophecy, Prayer and revival information, all at saveus.org. What a delight it is to come before you every day, day after day, week after week, now 25 and a half years to confront the deepest issues of America's heart and home, to rebuild the foundations of faith and freedom as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation at America's greatest crisis hour here on the near edge of the second coming. I remember back in 1993 when we formed Save America Ministry. Shortly thereafter, I uh, was uh, at the large Lake Avenue Congregational Church directly across from my law office in Pasadena, California, and a former Sunday school teacher encountered me there and said, Chuck, what are you doing now? And I said, well, I'm still practicing law, but we just formed Save America Ministries. And in his usual acerbic fashion, he said, well, at least you didn't bite off more than you could chew. And uh, <laughs> I've never forgotten that. And indeed, you know, I can't save America. Erwin Lutzer can't save America. I'm beginning to wonder if God could save America. Uh, well, he could if we would allow him. On the other hand, uh as I have spoken, Erwin, uh, to so many, uh, when we formed Save America Ministries, it was not to save something called the political or legal entity called America. Because the first three words of our Constitution are, we the people. It was actually to save we the people. In other words, to speak profoundly into the life of we the people 
for revival and awakening and restoration because that was America's only hope. Now, you're coming along and saying the purpose of this book that you have written is not to inspire us to take America back. You say we have crossed too many fault lines, have proven too weak to withstand media-driven cultural streams that have flooded our nation. I'm writing so not so much to reclaim the culture as to reclaim the church. And I believe, Erwin, that that is the message for the moment. All of the warnings of Scripture are not to the pagans, but to professing believers. All of them. Yet we seem to think that they're to them out there. So we've misquoted Second Chronicles 7.14 for 40 years. If my people, which are called by my name, would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I would hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. But that got translated by pastors and parachurch leaders and prayer leaders as if those liberals and those abortionists and those homosexuals and Slick Willie in the White House and Barack Obama and so on, if they would just get back to some basic traditional American values, we'd have three chickens in every pot, four cars in every garage, and live happily ever after. So we saw no revival. None to this date. So now it's a lot of water under the bridge. And what I understand you saying is, all right, now is not the time to try to take America back, but it's actually to speak profoundly into the life of the church because, indeed, we may very well be on the near edge of the second coming. Yes, and uh, I'm very interested in the commentary that you gave. One other little fact about Second Chronicles. That actually is a reference to Israel. Mm -hmm. What we must do is to recognize that America cannot be a Christian nation from the top down. You can't say, you know, if we just um, had different people in the White House, and many of us wish that at times we certainly did, but uh, we can't make it into a Christian nation. Mm -hmm. it, but we would like to see America become a nation of Christians. And so... The question is the responsibility of the Church that you have uh, introduced. And uh, we continue to pray for a revival, sure. but I would like to argue that we have to be faithful whether revival comes or not. Absolutely. What we have to do is to stand against this culture. Let me give you one example. There's an evangelical, whose name I won't mention, who uh, spoke at a national meeting, a national prayer meeting, Mm -hmm. And later on, there was an outcry because in 2010, he had preached against uh, same-sex marriage, and then he apologized. He apologized for the hurt mm. that had happened uh, because uh, of that message that he preached 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Well, here's the thing. Look at the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church in Rome. And in Romans chapter 1, he lays out the errors of aberrant sexuality, and he's very, very clear. And he doesn't say to himself, you know, I should really apologize to the <laughs> congregation, because I know that what I wrote has often been hurtful to other people. Well, like 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, written specifically to the church over their sexual abuse. And uh, he didn't apologize for any of it. And very no. few pastors will even preach from those chapters. And what we have to do, Chuck, and you will agree, we have to preach 
these passages, but with brokenness and humility, mm -hmm. and leading with the gospel and pointing out that really uh, we're pointing people to Jesus. But, um, you know, before the break, you talked about the role of the pastor in a church. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I know the pressure to not take a stand politically in terms of endorsing a political party or a particular candidate. I've never done that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I don't think that pastors should ignore what I call in the book those cultural streams that are swirling all around us and not preach about them and uh, pretend that we can be in our bubble while everything else around us is collapsing. There, there are people, there are parents in the churches who are asking questions, what do we do with our kids? You know, here in the state of Illinois, a year ago we have a new curriculum, mm -hmm. which is basically pornography for fourth graders. <laughs> and now, you know, the whole transgender thing, which confuses young people, it confuses their sexuality. Mm -hmm. But that's the point. You have to understand, people miss it. They, they don't understand that the purpose of these uh, teachings is to breed confusion, chaos... And contempt. Because, and contempt. And children who are separated from their parents' values and the values of their church can be much more easily led in Marx's direction. So the intention is to break up the family. And no. if people don't understand that, they don't. So these are the kinds of questions that people are asking, and pastors need to be able to address this, these issues lovingly. They have to talk about the tension that we feel, and uh, even talk about the misuse of love. You know, I point out in the book that um, today, anything that is deemed to be loving is justified. People don't understand that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they didn't stop loving. They just started to love the wrong things. They mm -hmm. began to love, be lovers of pleasure, lovers of self, uh, lovers of money. So, you know, you have these arguments. Well, two people, two men who love each other, what's wrong with them being involved in sexual relations? What's wrong with same-sex marriage? Shouldn't we have more love than less? There are so many naive people yeah. who accept slogans like that. So, I Well, there was a musical slogan that came out in the 1970s from a Christian singer that was popularized hugely. It was a beautiful tune uh, coming from a very well-known Christian family. How can it be wrong when it feels so right, now you light up my life? How yeah. can it be wrong when it feels so right? Feelings have superseded the faith, and uh, no wonder there's confusion among professing Christians. What we have in today's society is the idolatry of the self. I can define who I am. I can define I can do whatever I like. I can cast off all restraints. But, Chuck, I want you to know, and this is so important for your listeners to hear, that um, idols will always break the heart of their worshipers. So... People need to understand self cannot be an idol. We go back to God's book. We see what God has to say about these things. And what I feel does not make it right. All kinds of people have felt good 
about a lot of evil things. But it's the exaltation of feelings mm -hmm. over facts. It's an exaltation of the self. I can identify whoever I want to be. And nobody is supposed to question it. Well, you're there in Chicago, and it was about 10 years ago, eight years ago, I guess it was, that I was uh, leaving O'Hare Airport and uh, on my way wherever it was, and I looked up, and there was a massive billboard right there. Uh, what, I don't know if you call them interstates or freeways there, but uh, here's what the billboard said. Me, me, me. That's all it said. Me, <laughs> me, me me so it used to be the me generation now it's the me 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 generation and what what uh i don't know if you're if you know this uh erwin but i'm in the process of writing my 10th book right now called messiah uh unveiling the mystery of the ages and uh we're talking right now about the new age religion well do you know what the heart of the new age religion is you are yeah, the messiah you are the Messiah. You are the new I am. And everybody collectively is being self-exalted until we reach Godhood, and then we will be in unity. That is the foundation for the new world order, the new world government that is being ushered in right now as we speak. You know, in my chapter on socialism, I talk about the one world government and how even the coronavirus is being used to reset America and to reset its economic plan. Mm -hmm. And no you question. and I, we know that uh, the book of Revelation predicts this, as you mentioned, but it also tells us that there are saints who are willing to be martyred. And we as Americans need to rethink the role of suffering. And one of the reasons I wrote this book is to encourage believers to uh, to be faithful and to take the consequences. We cannot be shamed into silence. Yeah. I mentioned that many of our students at the university will not be talked out of their faith. They'll be mocked out of their faith. So mm. We'll pick up on that after this break. What you did not know is that yesterday our entire broadcast was given to the absolute unmitigated rise of persecution, not just around the world, but in America, we're being warned and we need to prepare. Let's devote our, some time in the next segment to that. We'll be right back, friends, with Erwin Lutzer. We will not be silenced. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church.
Having done all to stand, we must stand when evil pours in upon everything around us. How do we do that? Well, the Apostle Paul told us that we need to uh, arm ourselves. We need to put on the whole armor of God. Some people want to put on bits and pieces of the armor. For instance, they want to put on the helmet of salvation, but they don't want to put on the belt of truth because they think truth divides. Well, guess what? Jesus said it does. It divides like a sword. It really does. That's why the word of God is called a sword, the sword of the spirit. And so we need to have, we need to clothe ourselves with the whole armor of God if we're going to be able to stand in the evil day. But as a practical matter then, what does that mean? How do we translate that into our individual lives as Christians in our various walks, whether we're uh, uh, school teachers, whether we're lawyers or doctors, uh, whether we're uh, mothers in the home, wherever we happen to be? How do we translate that in real time in our time? Dr. Erwin Lutzer joining us with his book, We Will Not Be Silenced. Uh, Give us a take on that. Well, the thing is, we have to fight battles on multiple fronts. In the book that you are referencing that I wrote, one of the chapters is on the sexualization of children. And I point out that the cell phone in your teenager's hand does more to inform his or her worldview than an hour of Sunday school or an hour of church. A mother told me, I (laughs) I didn't realize, she said, that when I gave my daughter a cell phone, she said, I might as well have given her her first shot of heroin. So, you know, when we talk about the culture, we're talking about technology, this tremendous change, because technology is used for good. I mean, we're using it right now, but it is instantly addictive. So what happens is uh, parents are trying to feed their children, clothe their children, but the world is winning their hearts. So If you ask the question, what do we do, as I mentioned earlier, everyone will answer that question differently depending on their circumstances and so forth. But in the last chapter of my book, Mm -hmm. Strengthen What Remains, I take the words of Jesus to the church at Sardis. Right. And Sardis was a church that thought it was alive, but actually it was dead. And then Jesus... Almost sounds a bit like the American church, either that or Laodicea. You know, the problem with Sardis is it no longer saw the world as an enemy. And, of course, it it was absorbed by the culture. I could talk about that in more detail. Sure. But here's the point, and this relates to what you're saying. What do we do? In this dead church, Jesus goes on and says these words. But there are still some of you in Sardis who have not soiled your garments, and you shall walk with me in white, for you are worthy. Mm-hmm. And my challenge to all who are listening today is, will we be among those who have not soiled our garments and we'll walk in light, seeking God's wisdom, knowing where to draw lines? Because sometimes, uh, you know, there are aspects of the culture that we can uh, involve ourselves in, but where is the line, what, you know, where we can't? And, And yet at the same time, we have to ask, what does faithfulness look like to me? And the point that I like to emphasize is that we are not co- we're not called to be successful, but we are called to be faithful. Absolutely. And if we aim for success, 
we're probably going to be disappointed, but if we recognize that the goal is really faithfulness, then uh, we don't have to be obsessed by how big our church is or whether or not we're, quote, successful. We ask the other question, am I faithful, and what does that look like for me? Well, I love that phrase coming from a song of the past, may all who come behind us find us faithful. Uh, If there's anything that I want, I want the Lord to be able to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I want to live a life that is exemplary, that is without blemish. Uh, None of us are perfect, but he calls us to walk in holiness without which no man will see the Lord. And uh, I, I want to walk in that spirit. I know you do too. Exactly. And that's the thing that we have to call the church to. We can't do everything, but there are some things that we can do. And one of the things that um, is so important in the midst of all this discouragement, in the midst of all the dominoes that are falling, and we can certainly see that happening in Washington day by day, even as we are speaking, we have to remember that it is God who has brought us to this moment. Absolutely. We even have to remember, and I point this out in my chapter on... uh, the trashing of America's history, how it's Marxist and so forth. Right. But I also point out that we have to remember that the Church of Jesus Christ was built on Christ and not the American Constitution. You're, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you sure? You mean the anchor of our souls isn't the Constitution? You know, really? Newsflash, <laughs> it's not. In fact, Chuck, I'm sure that you've been to Israel, as I have been oh, a yeah. number of times. And when you're standing there at Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus said those words, that was really the citadel of pagan religion. It was. In fact, and, I stood once and spoke in one of those uh, alcoves, yeah. and unbeknownst to me, uh, people began to cry out my name. I didn't even know they were there. And, uh, you know, you never know when somebody's going to see you, going to know what you're saying, going to know what you're doing. We better be uh, prepared no matter where we are, even in Israel. Exactly. (laughs) And the point that is uh, very much important is that we're going to have to relearn lessons that the Church throughout history has learned. You Mm -hmm. know that throughout history, the Church has not had freedom of religion. Uh, for the most part. Uh, The whole idea of freedom of religion is a Western idea. So that's why you have martyrdom. That's why you have faithfulness in the midst of huge opposition. And the Church has always been an island of righteousness in a sea of paganism. Mm -hmm. And we need to rethink what that is all about. At a time when the churches have become huge, and there's nothing wrong with a huge church necessarily, but at a time when we think of church as, let, let me put it this way, the average American thinks that if we really walked with God and had the right people in power, we would be able to sail through life with freedom, with the blessing of God, and so forth. In, well, fact, in fact, they believe in, in all, for all practical purposes that America is heaven. Yeah, although it looks less and less like heaven (laughs) every day. (laughs) It's pretty hellish right now what's taking place, right? Right, right. (laughs) But anyway, um, so things are very dark. They're getting darker. And Chuck, I already know that you know this, but there is no place to hide anymore. No place. No place to hide. You can run, but you can't hide. 
Yeah. You can yeah. even you can even own a whole arsenal of firearms, but ultimately it will not protect you. Yeah. Yeah, to get into a controversial issue, you know, I was born in Canada where uh, the whole issue of guns was not a prominent issue as it is here in America. But the point is, setting that aside, you know, legally and culturally, the culture is closing in on us, and there is no place to hide. And I wrote the book that we're talking about today to encourage Christians to think through issues of socialism, of Marxism, of race, of uh, the trashing of our history, freedom of speech. And to each chapter, as you know, ends with this, what is the response of the Church? That's my mm-hmm. heart. I know that's yours, Exactly. Too. That's exactly the In the midst the of all response. of this, how do we respond to a culture that clearly has lost its way? All right, Jesus said this uh, in Matthew chapter 5. He said, look, You're the light of the world. He was speaking to the disciples and those who would follow him, that is the church. You're the light of the world. But then he said, but if the light that is in you be darkness, how great is that darkness? And I think that's a major problem that we have in our country today. The church was to be the light and was, in fact, the lighthouse in the country. But the light in the lighthouse has been dimming because of sin that has so clouded the uh, lenses of the lighthouse that it's not recognized anymore as pure light. And we are intimidated. And part of the reason for this is, of course, the Internet. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we fear vilification. Cancel culture. Because, uh, Mm -hmm. in fact, uh, you know that one of the last, the second last chapter of my book is entitled Vilify, 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 where I point out that (laughs) arguments today are not settled by rational discussion. They are settled by vilification, and everybody's outraged against something. Everybody is oppressed. Everybody wants to have collective demonization on their side so that they can... People are asking this question today, am I woke enough to be seen as virtuous? Uh And and that's the question, because if you're really woke, that shows that you are virtuous, and you have carved out for your place a small place, and, uh, you know, you are basically free from all of the entanglements of other people you're free of prejudice you're free of all these things well even evangelical pastors are being seduced into that thinking yeah that breaks my heart and they do so sometimes actually thinking that they are trying to be biblical and they don't understand why they aren't and what we need to do is to help them to understand that this is not the way of the cross this is not the way in which we can uh, change the culture by being woke. And um, people just need to understand that. Uh, You mentioned uh, before the last break the S word. The S word is the word suffering. It's a word the Apostle Peter referred to continually in his writings. Uh, If anybody would know about it, he would. The Apostle Paul would know about it. But we don't understand that in America today. And pastors will not preach about it because they say, you know what, that's too negative. Uh, We want to encourage the people. But if you're not preparing the people for suffering, you're actually engaged in spiritual child abuse, I think. 
Well, that's a strong statement. You know, many years ago, a man who preached on Islam, he was a convert from Islam, he had come from Europe, he preached a powerful sermon that was really scary. And I met with him for coffee later, and I was at that time the pastor of Moody Church, and I said, what should I do? And he took his finger and poked it into my chest and said, God is calling you to prepare the church for suffering. And I thought, you know, when I graduated from seminary, that was not part of the schedule, (laughs) but it certainly is today. Absolutely. and, And we need to do that. And it is so critical that people not be intimidated by the culture, but that they are willing to think clearly, to stand against it, and families is really the whole key. You know, in the book, Mm -hmm. I quote Dalrymple, who was not a believer. He's a communist, actually, Mm -hmm. or at least that's what his father was. And he said, show me a society in which there is 70% illegitimacy, where there are no fathers in the home. I will show you a society that will be filled with drugs and crime and all of these things. And in effect, all the money that you ever want to pour into those communities is not going to do any good. It's going to be drunk away. It's going to be gambled away. And that's not the answer. So we have to begin further back and to understand that there has to be a whole uh, issue that is so critical moving forward, including, you know, what we uh, teach about the family and so forth. And that's why, by the way, I know that that's your heart and that's your ministry. Ultimately, Ultimately, even if we're going to reclaim the church, we can only do it by also reclaiming families. It is Mm -hmm. the unit that God ordained by which the faith should be passed on. And that begins with husbands and wives. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I'm I'm so glad, uh, Irwin, that you and I have been able to fraternize again. This is Kingdom Fraternization, uh, fellowship over the Word of God, translating principles of the kingdom here to prepare the way of the Lord for history's final hour here in this country. And uh, I just appreciate so much what you've done here. I want to make your book available again to our listeners. It's an $18 book, friends. We will not be silenced. It's available on our website, saveus.org for $16. That's saveus.org. You can call us 1-800-SAVE-USA. Write to us at Save America Ministries. And uh, as David Jeremiah said, if I, could, if I could, I would put this book into the hands of every Christian in America. We're trying our best right now. Uh, Irwin, again, thank you so much. And friends, become a partner with us. Don't delay. The other guy's not doing it. You join with us. Become a voice for our time. You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.